Welcome to this month's science fiction double feature. This month we talk infomocracy with Malka Older and e-democracy with Stefan Strauss. Older, the author of Infomocracy, has an impressive resume. A humanitarian aid worker for over a decade, she's now working on a doctorate in sociology at the Institut d'Etudes Politiques in Paris, looking at the dynamics of multi-level governance and disaster response using the case studies of Hurricane Katrina and the Japan tsunami of 2011. Somewhere in there, she managed to write Infomocracy. It's made several best-of lists for 2016 and should make it to the top of your reading list if it hasn't already. Set in what seems like the near future, Infomocracy takes the familiar world of elections and the international system and turns them into a technological spy thriller. Here's how Melka describes the story. So my book is called Infomocracy. It's a science fiction political thriller that's set kind of towards the end of the 21st century, so about 60 years from now, 50, 60 years from now. And in this future, the whole world system has changed. Nation states are mostly gone, although there are a few remaining holdouts. And most of the world has joined this system called microdemocracy, uh, in which the basic political unit is a jurisdiction of 100,000 people called a sentinel. And so because it's by population, it could be a couple of city blocks in a really dense area, or it could be hundreds of square miles in some place that's really sparsely populated. But be that as it may, each of these geographically contiguous units of people can elect any government that they want from the couple thousand governments um, that exist in the world. And so government, when I say that, I mean something like what we call political parties, but it's, it's the whole system of government of how people want their territory to be governed. Many of these 2,000 or so governments are really localized and only kind of do the city that they're from, and, and they just do that. But other ones are really large and have sentinels all over the world. And they compete in the elections, which happen every 10 years, to try and become the government with the most sentinels in the world, which is called the supermajority, and probably has less power than people think, but it sounds cool, and so they want to be it. Uh, And so the book takes place at the third of these elections. There have been two already. Um, There's an incumbent called Heritage, which has been the supermajority for these past two 10-year terms. And as the election is drawing towards a close, we follow a a campaign worker for one of the smaller parties, Policy First. And then there's also, to, to make this whole system work, because obviously it's pretty complex and there's a lot of information that you need about 2,000 governments and also for a government to run these units that are scattered all over the world, they need a lot of information and communications. So there's this giant worldwide bureaucracy, which is basically like the UN plus Google called information. And it's a lot of people who do a lot of, spend a lot of time gathering and dispersing information. So there's a lot of surveillance, but there's no idea behind this that they're trying to keep things secret. The whole point is to get everything out and make it available to everybody. And sometimes not just make it available, But in cases like, let's say, advertisements that lie or politicians that lie, really stick that information in people's faces and make sure that they see the data behind uh, whatever claim is being made. And so another of the characters in the book works for information and is kind of a spy slash general badass. 
and there are a couple of other characters kicking around. And we watch as the election starts to go off the rails, really. I really enjoyed the two main characters, Ken and Mishima. I think that's how you pronounce her name uh, and how they work together. But what I really enjoyed is how even though the the technology felt like a little far away, the for me, the real sci-fi element was this political structure. Uh, how did you come up with the idea? Well, first, let me say, I think that's a really great observation that I appreciate a lot because I think, I mean, I think technology is so important and I had a lot of fun with the kind of little technology bits in the book. But I also think that, you know, our society changes in ways that, often interact with technology, but are distinct. You know, I think that some of the biggest changes, if we look back over the past three or 400 years, have really been social and societal changes. Um, And those are things that we should be looking at as science fiction authors as well. So I really appreciate, and of course, many do. I mean, I think Olivia, um, sorry, Octavia Butler is one great example. So yeah, so I'm really pleased, you know, to hear that that's that's something that you found interesting. Um, in terms of how I came up with the idea, they're, they're the two halves of the idea, right? The one is the these sort of small political entities that have a lot of choice, and that that means that the governments per se, the kind of countries, if we can call them that, aren't geographically bounded so much. And then the other half to make it work is, is the information and having this kind of one authoritative information source that's also very aggressive about getting the information out there. So the the first part of it, the the bit about having lots of different little units that can that can um, combine as they like. You know, I, I just had worked and lived in a lot of different countries that had secession or separatist movements. Some of them were very violent. I was in Sri Lanka for a while, uh, while there was a whole separate territory that was de facto a separate country that's since been overrun. Indonesia, which had had both successful separatist movements in East Timor and also less successful in other places, Aceh, for example. I also worked for a while in Sudan before South Sudan had seceded. And I was in Darfur, which there's a pretty strong separatist movement there. Um, But then also, you know, even when you're living in, in countries that are somewhat less troubled and less violent, you know, Spain had a violent secessionist movement for, for decades, which is now seems to be coming down, let's hope, uh, from the Basque country and less violent secessionist movements in Catalan area and less well-known, but also really <laughs> every other region. Um, similarly, Italy has a secessionist movement from the north. Uh, we're looking at Britain kind of seceding from the EU and then Scotland wanting to secede from Britain. So, you know, we can see this dynamic playing out, uh, even in my own country. You know, there's always petitions for secession that come up, usually from Texas. And so, it, you know, I think that the, the kind of ubiquity of this, I mean, first of all, I was just getting really frustrated living in some of these places and seeing the, the horrible wars that were going on. You know, for me, it was kind of like, if, you know, if there's a tiny slice of your country that doesn't want to be in your country, why do you want them? You know, why are you willing to go through all this and hurt so many people? To, to keep some territory, which at one point in history, you know, territory was a really critical factor to economic success and power. But if you look at the world now, it's not always the biggest countries that are most powerful. It's quite often the smaller countries that have better standards of living. It's really other factors besides territory. And, you know, looking at it as a problem for democracy, uh, democracy has this issue that, you know, if you have a small minority, it's very hard for them to get power. Which which drives a lot of these secessionist movements. You know, they just don't feel like their interests are being served or that their identity is being recognized. A lot of places have tried to do something about this through proportional representation or various other tricks. 
But, you know, we're, we're at a stage technologically and kind of in, our, in terms of our political sophistication when we could probably do a lot better than that. You know, then the other half of it, the information question, really came up during the last U.S. presidential election in 2012. And I had no idea it was going to get so much worse this time. And it was honestly, you can go back further than that and look at some of the things that were done in previous elections. And really the sense of, you know, misinformation and not misinformation being spread and just not having a place where you could go to prove or disprove something because it was too easy for the people spreading the misinformation to say, oh, we, we don't believe in the mainstream media. Oh, that's biased. And so you end up without any kind of gauge, any kind of common ground in terms of fact, which makes it really difficult, you know, to figure out what the truth is, obviously, but also to have a really serious political debate about serious issues that, you know, have valid viewpoints on both sides. But when you don't even have the facts beneath them, it's it's really hard to have that debate. And so I was just very frustrated and, you know, knowing that it was kind of a, a very dangerous gambit to have in real life, that it's very 1984 to have this giant monolithic um, bureaucracy of information. You know, you can see how easily it can be um, misused. But at the same time, I thought it was, you know, a really interesting concept to play with, to contrast with our world of just this incredible surfeit of information and, and no particular authority within it. Do you think better data and better quality data and better means of interrogating data will help us with this problem? Or is it just... I don't know. I don't want to say insurmountable because nothing's insurmountable, I hope. But it's 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 kind of hard to see, you know, our way through it at the moment because we're in the middle of it. Sure, sure. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think comes up some in the book is there's two sides to it. There's having the data and then there's people being willing to look at the data and take the time to interpret it. And, you know, even in the book where they have this huge bureaucracy, it's like instantly accessible and people can project it in front of them or look at it in their eyeball level and they have all this technology. They still find it really difficult to get people to pay attention to triaging what's true and what's not and to pay attention to the things that that they believe are important in terms of making informed political decisions. So, you know, that's the part that I think is really tricky. I mean, we have the information management capacity to do so much better than we're doing to do incredible things um, in terms of data. But getting people to pay attention to it, especially anytime it's complex or nuanced, is really the challenge. You know, I say this as someone who, despite being very interested in these things, I also, you know, I I really like reading novels and <clears throat> sometimes do that instead of reading academic papers. So I, I you know, I, <laughs> I'm certainly not saying this as, as someone who's perfect in this regard, but I think, you know, that's where we really have to have to look at, at how we can <laughs> improve. And, and some of that comes from, you know, kind of a, a baseline of education and just, you know, getting people interested making sure people know why politics affects them and, and how it's important to them. And I think being really better in our education systems about media literacy, because that I think is something that has just become so important over the past half century. And that at least, I don't know what it's like where you are, but at least in the public schools in the U.S., it's not not really there so much as a, as a topic. Do you think things like greater participation, you know, if we had all electronic voting or more referendums or opinion polls, that would be, I don't want to say unskewed, I really hate that word, but, you know, that were more constructed to actually get a, an interesting policy result out of. Do you think there's potential for that? It's a really interesting question right now because we've had 
at least three referendums that I can think of, four if you count the American election, um, in, in this very recent history that have just been kind of upended the common wisdom. So there was Brexit, um, there was the, the FARC treaty in Colombia, and now this thing in Italy. You know, this referendum thing is really interesting because, I mean, direct democracy is something that, that a lot of people have suggested as, as a way to move forward. And, and, and yet we've, had, we've got these sort of cautionary tales here where, you know, it's not, it's, it's a really tricky thing because if we believe in democracy, right, we have to kind of accept what people want and say, you know, maybe we as the experts, in quotes, whatever, are wrong and maybe Brexit is the way to go. Maybe that treaty wasn't good enough. But I think we also, you know, we've also seen that in these campaigns, there has been a lot of misinformation. And I think there's also a real risk with referendums. I mean, just thinking about the referendums that I voted on in the state level at the U.S., which were kind of small things, you know, about recreational marijuana use. And I don't know, there was one about adding a slot machine in one of the casinos. And there were, there were these sort of, you know, relatively small local issues. But, the, you know, the problem with referendums, I think they're, they're just yes or no, Right. So you're being given a proposal that you had no hand in creating and that maybe, you know, a proposal for something that you want in principle, and yet it turns out it's terribly put together and terribly budgeted and, you know, or there's this one little piece of it that you don't like. It's kind of what we hear about from our representatives all the time that maybe voted for the bill in committee and then not when it got out because it had things attached to it. I mean, governing is very complex. Um, And so I think just slapping referendums on things is not in itself maybe the whole solution, even though in principle, you know, I do think, I do think we need to work very hard to get more participation. And that's the other thing, all, all these referendums, I don't know about Italy, but the other ones at least had fairly low turnouts. So more participation, but I think, I think also the, you know, the really missing piece for democracy is, is an informed public. So we need to work on that at the same time as we expand participation. Is there something about not just media literacy, but uncertainty and how to how to reconcile or teach about uncertainty and and the outcomes of there well i think i yeah that's another great question i think you know something else that came up for me as you were asking this I and mean, polling itself is is a relatively new thing i think maybe we should, it's worth asking some questions about polls and the way that they affect the data that they're supposed to be measuring right? Because they're not neutral. I mean, especially now the way the systems are fed up, there's this constant feedback machine um, between polls and people's opinions and the way people plan to vote. So that's that's one part of it that I think is worth really thinking, thinking through more, and particularly exit polling. But I think, yes, uncertainty is another really important issue in terms of well, I mean, I think one one of the things that we see in the way people vote is people trying to vote for certainty and trying to vote for people who tell them things, yes and no, black and white. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think in that sense, it's quite important. In terms of results, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a little ambivalent about polls right now. Um, and I think that uh, that having a little a little uncertainty in that process is maybe not the worst thing. Getting back to the information, actually, that it's kind of ubiquitous. I kind of, you know, think of it as the internet in in kind of an analog, that it's always there. And as soon as it's gone, uh, everyone's like, oh, is it really worth it? Uh, Is it really really all it's uh, cracked up to be? Do you think we're in danger now in terms of, you know, we think the internet's always going to be there, things are always going to be accessed? Are we in danger of kind of taking that for granted like they did in the book? Absolutely. I think so. Um, and 
you know, a lot of that, that bit comes from my experience working in kind of disaster zones or very remote areas. And, you know, until you lose electricity, grid electricity over a fairly wide area, and we take it so much for granted. It's, it's, there's so many things in our lives that it affects, you know, people, uh, the, the Fukushima accident in Japan, which is something that uh, I worked on a little bit academically, and I was there shortly after working on the response. You know, people think it was, I don't know, the wave hit the reactor or something. And, you know, what really, in fact, went wrong was they were cut off from grid electricity. And then also they lost the uh, the generators. But it was, it was the earthquake that cut them off from grid electricity. And after that, they were unable to reconnect it in time. So, you know, you can't pump gas without electricity in, in most places. You may not be able to get water out of the ground. And and the internet is becoming very much like that. You know, it's something that underpins so much of the things we do. Um, pain <laughs> for things. That's an issue in the book when they lose it. Um, just how we communicate with people, how we're how we're able to find information. I mean, <laughs> what what do you do when you can't look up Wikipedia or the Encyclopedia Britannica on the internet? you're going to have to go back to a library and libraries are becoming more and more digital. And so I, I really am a strong believer from my experience in having analog backups for as much as possible. Uh, there was a little bit about kind of security in the book as well, about whether the votes were uh, authentic and things like that. Do you have worries about internet security and privacy and surveillance? Uh, yes. I mean, I think, you know, we all do in this at this stage of the game, um, as an academic, as a sociologist, part of what I find so interesting about it is kind of how those worries are used and how this has created a whole new industry of, you know, people who who create software to keep your identity safe. And the, the, the ways they keep finding to make our credit card numbers safer and safer, and they keep coming up with sort of new tricks and new things. And so, you know, I, I, I find that quite quite interesting how this is also becoming part of our life and you know again it's something that for most people it's it's certainly for myself it's way beyond the level of what they can code or imagine coding or even imagine what what, what that means you know to do that and so we become very reliant on these other services to do it for us uh, so that's that's certainly an issue I don't know I think that we we really again it's something where we kind of have much better capacity than what we're using and if we if we needed to figure out a way to do secure voting electronically, I think that's something that's probably very doable or at a minimum, you know, kind of have a, a good way of checking to know at least if it has been hacked, not necessarily to prevent everything, but to have a pretty good, um, you know, what do they call those ink bombs in the banknotes? <laughs> so, you know, that it, that it's been compromised. And but I think that we're just, you know, the our governments are really far behind from where where technology has gotten to. I like the kind of parallel in the book with domain and the kind of, I guess not anti-democratic, but they didn't like the system as it were, and were using the same kind of ways to infiltrate the election with their own propaganda. I mean, I felt like it was really important to show that, you know, that there's the famous quote that um, democracy is the worst system, except for all the other ones that we've come up with, right? So... <laughs> So, you know, I am, I'm a believer in democracy. I think we still have to make it a lot better and we have to keep working at it and see if we can find something better. But it's, so far, you know, I think this is what we've got and we've got, to, we've got to keep trying to make it better. But I think that, you know, there are really good arguments also for looking at the system and saying, 
you know, this is failing so many people in so many ways. And maybe incremental change isn't enough to get us to a place that's really equitable and just and, you know, positive for as many people as we can. And so I want, you know, I wanted to have a character in the book who, who really believed that, you know, he's, he's fighting against the system that everyone else is, is working for and is trying to make better. But he's not doing it because he's just nihilistic and destructive. He really believes that it's uh, at best kind of obscuring the problems. And, and, you know, everyone's so proud of themselves for belonging in micro-democracy. And, and yet all these terrible things are going on that they're able to ignore quite easily, uh, which I think is very true of our, our systems. The one thing that left uh, me wondering, whenever they crossed a sentinel, you must have micro international relations or uh, between all these sentinels or like kind of packs agreements across you know all of liberty and all of heritage did you think of that or did you just leave that unsaid yeah well i i mean the one place where i talked about it a little bit was in some of the that some of the cities have kind of conglomerates um or consortia that run at least most of them so tokyo i talk about that a little bit in the tokyo section uh because yeah it, it does seem like especially for certain um, basic services that are distributed, it would be really inefficient not to have some kinds of treaties and, and coordination. But I think we also, you know, it's it's not quite as, as crazy as it sounds, because at least in the US, for example, we have a lot of sort of municipal areas, right, where the city has gone grown beyond its original boundaries. And so you have various municipalities that function essentially as one large city, right? And they may have quite different laws, um, I mean, they're usually not hugely different, but you'll have, you know, no turn on red, turn on red, or, you know, you have different, different cities that have different mayors and they can make different decisions. And we're, we're really used to that. And, you know, you have it too at the county level, it's a bit less noticeable. And then we have it at the state level where you cross a state border and, and certain things change and yet they've worked things out. So obviously it's, it's a bit more complicated where you have the number of governments that I'm talking about. I do kind of have the assumption that the larger ones at least have kind of blanket treaties with each other and, you know, with some of the other ones. And that then in places that are really codependent, like cities, that they at least try to work things out to get some economies of scale and some efficiencies. And, you know, it's, it's, the borders are clearly pretty open for most of them, as you see people just kind of walking around. And so they've, they've clearly worked out some things. <laughs> there, there's like hallmarks of current international relations as well, which, it would be interesting to see how uh, that would evolve as the micro-democracy went on, like non-extradition treaties and things like that. So uh, the next book in the series, which I just just finished and it'll come out in September, um, it's called Null States. And it has a, quite a lot of it has to do with those countries that are not part of the micro-democracy system. So a lot of it is how those relationships function and that how that affects the system and the way it's able to work. Cool. That was going to be my next question. Uh, and my last question, actually, uh, was if you could tell us a bit more about the sequel. Yeah. So as I, as I said, it's called Null States. And so election is, you know, it's really fun. It's really exciting. And it's certainly really important as a way of deciding who's who's in charge. But it's only part of the system, right? And so it was really important for me to look at governing in between elections as well. There's a little bit of election um, shenanigans in the next book, but it's kind of localized. Uh, but there's a lot more about how governments can can jockey for power and try to use their influence and affect things outside of 
of elections themselves. And then, as I said, you know, there's a lot more about kind of those other places, the places that are not covered by information, and then also the places that are new to information and are not well covered. So where in the first book, um, information seems pretty ubiquitous and omnipotent, uh, the second book has a lot, quite a lot about places that kind of fall through the cracks or it kind of doesn't reach there and kind of what are the limits of, yeah. of this, this huge yeah. um, bureaucracy? What are the limits to its powers? After I finished reading the book, I wondered... How far were we from the online e-democracy in infomocracy? I wanted to vote from my mobile phone, damn it, instead of walking the two blocks to my polling station. So, how close are we? Well, turns out it's pretty complicated as well. I spoke to Stefan Strauss from the Institute of Technology Assessment of the Austrian Academy of Sciences about the current state of e-participation and e-democracy. I first asked him to explain the different types of e-participation. Uh, good definitions are always a question. There are plenty of definitions, but in general, e-participation is about the use of information and communication technologies to support political processes, as broad as this is. And this includes uh, two dimensions, basically. It's top-down and, and bottom-up approaches. For instance, top-down means that the government institutions or the, the parliaments ask, ask citizens for their opinions and they use ICTs to some extent. This can be an online uh, consultation, this can be a e-petition or whatever. So it really depends on what, what the process really looks like. But this is basically first dimension, the second is bottom-up, so civil society engagement. So actors, NGOs, grassroots, citizen groups, uh, etc. that have a particular concern and use ICTs or online platforms to stimulate the political process, which then is ideally taken up by the by the authorities, so to speak. So this is a basic de definition. Do we have an, uh, a sense of what the most commonly used types of e-participation are? There's a lot of different types uh, and dimensions, but the problem is that participation democracy means so many things. So it, it's it's the whole setting of political discourse, dialogue, protest and whatever. So there are some basic types, but there is no commonly used type because it's always depending on how the process looks like, what is the aim of the participation, is there a rationale, what is the rationale and so on. So so the three basic types are first of all information. It's the it's the fundament of every participatory process, regardless of whether it's 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 ICT supported or not. Uh, second is communication, then we have collaboration. So these are the three basic types, which are, of course, not as separated as, as, as it sounds, because they are, they are really basic, basic types that, that build on each other. Because without information about a process, about, about what, it, what it's the issue to be participating uh, in, uh, you cannot really do participation, of course. So you need informed citizens and you need information about an issue to enable citizens informing their political uh, opinions, which are then ideally exchanged in, in, in a participatory process. Yeah, And collaboration means that citizens are not just asked for their opinion, but they really can contribute and are involved in some kind of political process. So they are t linked into... Uh, policy making, for instance, they're asked to 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 bring in their 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 ideas, their their concepts, or their 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 concerns, 
about a political issue, about, for instance, a policy, and then this policy-making processes takes the citizens' opinions really into account. This is this is this is the difference. Communication just means okay, we ask the citizens what what do, what do they perceive about something, and then we do something about it. But it, maybe we don't do something about it. But it's more about communicating with the citizens. It's less about really uh, developing ideas or concepts with them. Do we have any sense what, and maybe this is based on, uh, again, the kind of uh, level of participation that they're asking for, but do we know the best types of activities or collaboration or questions uh, to use e-participation for? And do we know why those are the best types of activities? Uh, same answer. It, it, it's a very tricky question because uh, you don't, you cannot simply say, okay, these are the best types. These are working in every uh, democratic process and forget about the rest because democracy doesn't work that way, right? Um, it really depends on, on the particular aims and circumstances of a participatory process. For What is success, for instance? What is success of e-participation? Or what, what is success of participation? This is a question which is uh, discussed for I don't know how many years uh, and there is no simple answer for that, of course. Because it depends, first, uh, what is the issue, uh, how relevant is the issue, and how is the process designed. It makes a difference whether you set up a, a participation process, you ask citizens to to bring in their opinions, and you have already taken the decision beforehand. So it's, it's worthless then. And to talk about voting specifically, do you know if there's any particular benefits or any particular drawbacks for using something like e-voting for you know, regular elections. So you, you can do e-voting for a lot of things. You can, you can, of course, the most obvious and uh, most prominent issue is is, is doing uh, parliamentary elections. This is also the most complicated and the most critical one. The problem starts already earlier. The problem starts that uh, where where the difference is between a participatory democracy or participatory processes and 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 voting, or where the voting process. Uh, is linked to the political system because it's at the end. If you if you if you vote somebody, it's just a quantitative approach, right? The majority decides uh, who is the representative, but the majority is not involved in for what this uh, person stands for because this is another form. And the same is when you ask uh, people to vote for a, a final decision. Uh, and the people are not involved in this final decision, so in the process that led to this decision, then it's again only quantitative. You just ask the majority, okay, are you? do you want to remain the UK in the, in the EU or not, for instance? So a risk of populism in a way. It, it's a punctual process. It's not a, it's not a continuing participatory democratic process as participation foresees, by definition. So in a sense, it wouldn't really matter if we were voting online or going to a poll booth in that sense, if, if the process remained the same. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Uh, it's a complete, complete difference. Um, it's already complicated to, 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 to conduct votes, as we see in Europe, as we see in the US or wherever at the moment. So the voting and the elections are a very complicated issue. And the more technology... Uh, is involved in this process, the more complex it gets. And this is, raises a lot of uh, security issues. It's, it in, increases complexity and uh, a lot of risks are entailed to this. 
what's the problem with uh maybe not the problem but i guess how does the technology increase the complexity a technology is always you can you can perceive every technology as, as a system right um so you have a, pro, a process you have uh, you have people uh, in a political system uh, being involved in, in an election they ask for giving their votes they're, they're going to the ballots uh, as we as we notice, if you have a technology, this is an additional system. So the process of voting uh, gets more complex with every system that is additionally involved in there. A technology is, is a black box usually, so it's not it's not transparent for the for the for the for the citizens how this technology works, uh, and it's also not transparent for the political administrative system that installs the system because you need a lot of uh, legal and technical experts that really understand the system and there's a really a lack of experts in this field there are just a few that really understand how the systems work and there are just a few that really know how to how to really look into the systems in order to verify it and uh, make it accountable do we know how secure these systems are are they are they closed in a sense? Like, I guess um, in the US it's more machines rather than actual online voting, but do we know how secure they are? Yes and no. I mean, uh, there is no secure e-voting system. This is a short answer. Because if you if you ask an e-voting expert, they all tell you the same. Um, so far, we don't have really measures that uh, that avoid or that, that keep the anonymity of the, of the voting. So, Anonymous voting is is one precondition for for a democratic uh, for voting in a democratic system, and you always have options to hack hack of, uh, an an e voting system. It, it's regardless of whether this is an internet voting system, it's even more complicated, or whether it's a it's a voting machine in in the in the poll station. I mean, you 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 probably know the cases in the US. We already had this in two thousand and eight. Where there were several errors and problems, um, whether votes are really counted or whether they are double counted or whether they are lost, and the same problems uh, are still existing. So it's it's really really more problematic than than beneficiary for a democracy, in my point of view. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting because, like, I you know my default assumption is that we're we're heading towards more kind of e-voting, but I guess I guess we're not. <laughs> Uh, this depends. I mean, there, there are a lot of there, there are a lot of voices that would like to introduce e-voting uh, at a larger level. We already also have this discussion in Austria once in a while. We already had an had an had an election, a student election, and the it was in two thousand and nine, and it was not a success. It was a good system. The system is is quite secure and so on, but it's still open to manipulation. And there were several issues. There were some uh, uh, some uh, votings uh, lost. And then they decided to skip it. It was a it was a test, and uh, the test more or less failed. With other countries like in Estonia, they use it for I don't know for almost ten years. They are quite they they, they like it quite a lot. But uh, for instance, they also were victim to a hacking attack in two thousand and seven, I think, and larger parts of the the whole country were decoupled from the internet. And if you perceive that the voting system is in the internet as well, then you can imagine uh, how dangerous this could be. So is that one of the greatest barriers then to kind of greater participation is that the one, the systems 
introduce complexity into the security or vulnerability of them if they're purely online or or left, I guess, to like a very small group of people who understand them. Uh, yeah, the, the the greater complexity is always a, a problem, and it's also a security issue because, uh, as I said, you introduce an additional system, or, or you change a process by introducing an additional system like the voting process. Uh, then you have to take care for this additional system to be secure, and this always uh, so. And there are multiple processes integrated into the system. So, for instance, you have to ensure an anonymity, as I said. There are, of course, a lot of approaches to 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 take care of this, like uh, uh, cryptographic functions, like the blind signatures. But there are still flaws, and they are they are not 100% secure because there is no 100% security. It's not possible to to create uh, fully stable technical systems. You always have the possibility to hack a system. As voting is one of the most serious uh, processes we have in a democracy, it's probably a good idea to 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 think twice before using these systems for really uh, factual elections. I mean, there are options to to reduce the problem by, for instance, by using e-voting systems not for parliamentary elections but just for for smaller uh, smaller votings in the community level, for instance, which are not legally binding. This is a different case. So you can you can you can take care of the process by not uh, making uh, for, for fully shifting the responsibility to, to the technology, but rather for the for the organization of the process. So so to to install more uh, more items in the process that uh, that improve the verifiability and accountability of the whole process. Even though we have these barriers, uh, what are people thinking about? Like, what is the next? Is there better technology or better processes or better integration to make these things, I guess, more accountable and more democratic? I mean, I would, would come back to the first, very first question. I think it's really about um, what do we want from a, from a democratic system and, and what, what, what do we understand? How do we understand uh, participation? Of course, you need voting in a, in a, in a, in a participatory uh, democracy. Um, but as, as, I, as I tried to explain, it, it, it's quantitative. It's not qualitative. And democracy lives from qualitative processes. So you need uh, room for, for public engagement, for, for political discourse, opinion sharing, and so, and so on, in order to have a vivid democracy. Voting is at the end of this, of this whole process. It's, it's of course, uh, inevitable and very important. But if you only rest on voting... Uh, and uh, and only only focus on uh, technology. Uh, this this does not contribute a lot to 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 revitalize democracy or, 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 or improve the quality of political decisions. So the best way is to improve this engagement process earlier on, before we get to voting and before we get to elections. Right, um, and technology can help you to to improve the process, but it cannot improve voter turnouts, for instance, and it it cannot improve transparency of the democracy and so on. It's all about the process. The technology is just a tool in this regard. Of course, you can do an online platform, for instance. You can start online discussion groups. You can reach a lot of people much more. You can do a lot of campaigning via, via ICTs. 
it depends on how you do this. If you if you just use and set up an online platform, for instance, and uh, send an email to please discuss your topic, citizens, uh, then it's not a not a good process, right? So it's very complex. It's very very difficult. You need a lot of lot of manpower and efforts to to really create a good and solid e-participation process. I guess that's that's still the the fundamental part of I guess campaigning and interacting and uh, formulating policy. That no matter how much technology put around that, if people aren't interested in it or you don't deliver on it, I guess uh, that's that's kind of a problem as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, I don't know how, how you came to e-voting. Is it is it because of this uh, novel or is it is it is it a wider interest? Uh, it's it's partly because of the novel, but also I just like technology. You know, it's it's always kind of seen as the 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 one thing that'll fix everything. It'll bring costs down and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah of course, uh, and it makes a difference. It makes a difference if you if you if you talk to people or if you if you let people vote because you also create a create a distance to the people. It's just a, it's then a, there's the term click democracy. So it's it's rather about convenience, and as you mentioned, it's about uh, dropping costs. Uh, which which is one of the real main arguments for e-voting to make the process more efficient and 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 less cost uh, cost intensive. But it, it's a fallacy because, um, as I said, you need a lot of experts. These systems are very very expensive, and you these systems uh, are not just there if you buy it. These systems need to be uh, continuously uh, maintained. So, uh, so so this is the real problem and the real challenge. You can of course buy a system which probably works but you cannot really take care of the system for in a mid midterm uh, range or in, in the longer run because you need staff you need experts and you need to constantly uh, check whether there are hacks and manipulations which you cannot really really exclude so they, they are always possible yeah you can't wheel it out every four or five years and expect it to work properly yeah <laughs> <laughs> It does make it seem like more of a science fiction novel uh, in that respect, but uh, it was it was great talking to you, and I can now think of you know e-participation with a I don't know a more critical eye. I think when it comes to just like yes no questions. And that's it. Thanks for listening to this month's podcast. Thanks to both Malka Older and Stefan Strauss for their time. You can find links to their sites in the show notes. Let me know what other books you think I should cover, or really, just any great books you've read lately. You can find me on Twitter at SillyPup. Remember, the science fiction of the future depends on the science fiction we read today. So read wisely. See you next month.